Good evening, Hushlings. Welcome back to another Declassified Discussions. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. Our guest today is a producer, director, and writer known for the, the 2021 documentary film Being Taken, the director's cut. As well as Secret Space UFOs and Beyond the Spectrum and Volcanic UFO Mysteries. Hushlings, please welcome Darcy Weir. Thank you so much for being here tonight. We appreciate your time. Before we get rolling, can you let our listeners who may not have heard of you, just give them the gist of what you're about, what you do, what you've been up to? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I've been creating a series of documentaries for Uncorked Entertainment and 1091 Films. Um, I started producing documentaries uh, pretty much in 2009. And um, I cover things like the stuff you cover on the show, cryptids. I, I did two documentaries on uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Um, and I've done multiple documentaries on UFO-related phenomenon. Um, and I finished one called The Bitcoin Field Guide, which covers sort of like cryptocurrency and all these different um, chapters of the crypto world, so to speak. Um, just like a crash course so people can understand if they haven't really looked into it before. And um, this film you guys probably saw, Secret Space UFOs Apollo 1 to 11, is part of a series and uh, I, I have a new one, Secret Space UFOs, uh, Fast Walkers, coming out on May the 2nd. And uh, yeah, basically, as a filmmaker, I just try to look at these rabbit holes that you can go down. And in ufology, there's multiple rabbit holes. You know, it's, it's like this multi-layered onion and there's different stories that come out of every layer of this conspiracy. So that's what I like to do. I like just kind of like peel back a layer and take a look at it and take the viewer along with me for the ride and um, try to present factual information. And, and yeah, and that's uh, what I've been doing for a little while now. Now, in your latest documentary, you have some pretty big names, some pretty big hitters. Who, who's involved in this documentary, people that you've interviewed and that were part of the whole thing? <laughs> Richard Dolan, a UFO historian, and he's written many books on the national security state and the history of the military investigating UFOs. Um, James Fox, who's also a filmmaker. Uh, journalist, citizen journalist, who's been researching and following the story of UFOs for a long time now, greater than 20 years. Um, Mike Barra, who's pretty well steeped in anomalies on the moon. And uh, myself, I actually do a bit of presentation of information here too, and um, discuss what was happening on these missions from Apollo one to 11. James Fox was just on Rogan today, right? He was, it was an interesting conversation. I really, really haven't gotten into that whole Brazilian UFO thing. It, it's obviously been known, but it's kind of gone past me for a, a long time. And then more recently it's been talked about a lot more, probably a lot to do with him, but it's, it's really fascinating. That one. Yeah. Virginia. It's yeah. incredible. I had, you know, seen a sci-fi television documentary on it that came out that had Stanton Friedman in it from the 90s, I think, the late 90s, because it happened in 1990, was it 1996 that the actual incident happened? I think or that's what he had said, 96. And I didn't know what he was going to add to that story you know people have heard about it but the details he go into he goes into in the documentary is pretty incredible like he really maps out 
the location where they found the one alien and, uh, you know, the testimony from many of the adults that were kids that saw the thing and um, the wife of the dead soldier that essentially like nabbed one of the aliens and wrestled it into a, a police car to take to their base um, who then, you know, later died because whatever this thing secreted was like a super fair, like disgusting, poisonous uh, grease that killed them. And uh, actually it's, it's a pretty cool documentary because so much more information is coming out after it's been released, you know, like they didn't have the interviews or the documentation at the time that the film was published last October, but now they have uh, two medical reports from two different doctors that examined the bodies of, uh, or examined the body of the guy who died from this like mysterious illness that basically shut down his immune system uh, because he touched this thing. So yeah, more and more is coming out. Apparently there might be a video of one of the aliens circulating in Brazil, but they don't have it yet. That's pretty wild stuff. There was also this kind of clarifying moment where he's talking about this in this Rogan interview where he starts talking about a conversation that he had with Christopher Mellon and uh, Chris was saying that they had 4K, pretty much like 4K video of craft. imagery from satellites. Yeah. And actually um, kind of coincides with this documentary that's coming out on May 2nd called Fast Walkers. The whole point of this documentary is covering like everything from 1973 to now in terms of like space UFO anomalies. So all the STS missions uh, that were used to build the ISS um, and, you know, all this stuff that's happening with Arrow and it's a pretty current documentary. It's covering everything like up until this year. And uh, one of the things we go over is like how Christopher Mellon has been talking about trying to unify these detection systems around the world to observe these UAP in a more accurate and organized uh, data-driven way. So, you know, we have listening systems in the oceans and we also have uh, dishes on the planet that face out into space. And then of course, satellites, right? Tons of satellites and um, satellites that look at the sun all day, like the stereo AB satellites and uh, the DSP system is what we cover in this documentary. Um, the DSP was the D defense satellite program and they started launching those satellites in the 1960s right through to like the nineties pretty much. And um, they had infrared detection systems. They had optical baffle that could take pictures and uh, you know, track things. Uh, this guy named Ron Regeer, who's a pretty well-known ufologist uh, from back in the day, he worked on the DSP tracking system and he ended up uh, getting a whole bunch of documentation out of that program, uh, which wasn't classified because he had the access to, to get it. Um, and he basically had this report that was like over a, a range of years that showed all of the fast walkers and fast walkers to NORAD to the air force are actually a code name, uh, for deep space UFOs, um, that enter the atmosphere of earth and sometimes just hover around earth and then take off. Um, and so you know, some of those readings, which is really interesting, also coincide with mass witness events that happened on Earth, meaning this object came from space, went to Earth, and then a whole bunch of people on Earth on that same day saw something. So um, 
Yeah. Uh, Christopher Mellon's paper that he wrote, you know, uh, kind of petitioning and, and saying that the government should unify these communication systems in space on on Earth and in the oceans to track UAP is important um, so we can understand what these are, where they're from. And then, you know, interestingly enough, too, Bill Nelson, who's the NASA head administrator, he's obviously made some comments recently, and he's very interested in UFOs, right? But he did this interview with Axios News, and Axios uh, were saying, you know, what what's going to happen with this UAP research group that NASA has set up? And he was saying that um, this June, they're going to have a report that will go public. And he said that NASA believes that we should unify our um, detection systems. So it kind of repeats what Christopher Mellon said back in, let's say, 2021. Uh, And now the NASA head administrator is saying, we should also use our satellites and stuff. And then you have, um, you know, Joe Rogan's show and um, James Fox reading that letter saying that they basically have tons of satellite data. So my documentary that's coming out shows that we have a history of satellite data dating back to, say, the 70s, tracking UFOs. Imagine what they have now. You know, they have probably a treasure trove of anomalous objects that they just kind of filter out and put to the side because they maybe they're not a dangerous danger to us. Maybe they don't care that much and they just want to focus on Russia, China and foreign adversaries that they're trying to track. It sounds like you've got a pretty awesome lineup of subject matter and probably even guest speakers, I'm sure, for Fast Walkers. And that's real exciting. I look forward to seeing it. But regarding secret space UFOs, could you get into the subject matter of that a little bit more so for our listeners who may not have seen that documentary yet? Yeah, I mean, the one that you guys saw, Secret Space UFOs, Apollo 1 to 11 is part of a series. So I did Secret Space UFOs, NASA's first missions, which covers everything since NASA's inception to the end of the Gemini program. Um, So the first NASA designated pilots uh, test flights were with a rocket aircraft basically that was mounted to the wing of a modified B-2 bomber. And that happened, they started testing that, like building that in 1959, just a year after uh, NASA went from being NACA to NASA. And it was a joint collaboration with the Air Force. Um, This space plane was called the X-15. And Many different pilots flew it. Joseph Walker, Joe White were two pilots that said that they saw UFOs when they first exited the atmosphere with these rocket-powered planes. And one of them even said later on when he was retired and was doing a conference, he showed photos of the UFOs that he had kind of snuck out and said that NASA and the Air Force had tasked him with trying to take as many photos of these things uh, when he went up. So this is the very first NASA space missions, right? Very first astronaut-designated flights. And if you put that into context, NASA was part of a UFO research Uh, to some degree, right from 1961 until now, in my opinion. But, um, and and my opinion extends further that they've been part of the cover-up because there's just been so many strange things that have happened throughout history. During uh, 
the Mercury missions, which were the first capsules, like test capsules where one pilot could get inside of this capstone on the top of a rocket and float in orbit around Earth. They saw things. Uh, there's the famous Fireflies incident, which we now know really wasn't UFOs. It was just a uh, seeing a phenomenon for the first time in space that an astronaut didn't quite understand because we hadn't been to space yet. So we were really just figuring it all out. Um, basically, like these molecules of NH2O uh, or nitrous 1-2O, there's no oxygen, sorry, so N2, they froze and started revolving around the capsule because whenever you have something that's a certain mass in space, it will create its own gravity and things will get attracted to it. So every time those things revolved, these little pieces of ice basically revolved by his capsule window, the sun would illuminate them and they would light up like fireflies. And he thought that they were like these alive space critters or something like that. Um, but they weren't. So we cover that in the documentary. We cover that's NASA's first missions. We cover um, then all of the strange things that happened during the Gemini missions. And uh, Gemini went from 1 to 11. You know, it's a bit of a blast from the past, but I just wanted to build a chronology of strange things happening in space. And I kind of mix that with a little bit of, uh, you know, news about UFOs and stuff happening today, just so that people see that this is like an ongoing, evolving, you know, uh, topic, really. This documentary, Apollo 1 to 11, uh, with Mike Barra, we kind of break down photos that were taken by the Apollo astronauts that show signs of strange structures on the moon. Um, and then there's also what looks like objects that are flying above the moon or uh, DAC motion picture video when they're in cis lunar space in between Earth and the moon where there should be nothing floating around. Like these are not, this is not satellite territory. This is the void, so to speak. And there's all kinds of things shooting off and like moving around in DAC motion picture footage that was made by the NASA astronauts, right? So, yeah, just showing that, showing what the astronauts were talking about when they saw these things. You know, you can hear um, Eugene Cernan, who was an astronaut on many of the missions. Uh, he was actually the last man to go on the moon with Apollo 17. Um, you know, he had this recollection of seeing something that looked like the S4B, which is a stage of the rocket that's supposed to, you know, just propel off into space when they were, when they get out and escape uh, the atmosphere. But you, and he's curious, he thinks it's the S4B, but what is it? And it's on the way when he's on the way going to the moon during Apollo 10. Um, we hear this very same confusion and question come from Neil Armstrong and his team during Apollo 11. Um, and James Fox, at the end of this documentary, really kind of take drives it home uh, that Buzz Aldrin probably has been part of the UFO cover-up for a long time. Uh, supposedly... James Fox became really close with Buzz Aldrin's best sibling, uh, like closest sibling, his sister, Faye Ann Potter. And uh, through speaking with her and becoming close with her over the years, um, he found that he might have an opportunity to talk to Buzz Aldrin about these UFO experiences that he had, both on earth and in space. And he was apparently ready to, you know, spill the goods, but uh, he kind of ghosted James Fox because 
at the time, uh, SETI Institute was just being set up, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which uh, you know is run by the lead astronomer, Seth Shostak, has been for a long time now. And Seth is actually in my new documentary. Um, and uh, I can't remember his name. Paul, Paul Allen was an investor. Um, he invested in SETI and he got labeled a UFO quack. So that turned off Buzz Aldrin and he didn't want to jeopardize some kind of civilian liquid rock rocket space adventure program he wanted to create with $500 million of, you know, VC funding or something back then. So he bailed on, on James and, uh, I'm trying right now to actually get in touch with them, uh, to see if he'll come clean on that. That is Buzz Aldrin, uh, I've got his number and stuff, but, um, that's just the way it goes. It seems in like ufology, it's just smoke and mirrors a lot of the time. It's interesting too, with all the stuff going on and things being in the news headlines and hearings and some of the stuff that we're getting is, I mean, it's interesting stuff, but it's nowhere near, I'm sure what they have. Do you think that there's all this hesitation, obviously because if the military has some type of technology, that's not from planet earth. Do you think that hesitation is because of the fact that this might not be China or Russia or some other earthbound adversary that we have. And what are your uh, opinions on what these are? Cause there's so many variations of, of UFO and experiences that people have. Yeah. I mean, there's incidents that have happened in the past uh, that, could have been very well our own experimental craft, right? Uh, for example, Westall 66, I covered pretty well in a documentary in this series called In the Beginning, like Secret Space UFOs in the Beginning. I interviewed uh, Shane Ryan in Australia when I was living there for two years. And it was maybe one or two saucer-shaped craft but um, the thing that's really interesting about UFOs is that they've the sightings and the shape of them has evolved over time, right? Like we used to, back in the 1960s, 50s and such, you saw saucer-shaped craft, right? That could very well have been just what the military was building um, at the time a saucer shaped vessel. Nowadays, people are arguing over whether the Tic Tac was our own, you know, uh, black budget secret spacecraft, right? I don't know. Um, but then you also have these flying triangles and there's a guy named Edgar Rothschild Fouché who came out in the nineties and said, I worked at Area 51 on the TR-3B, which is a anti-gravitic spacecraft. It was meant to be a equipment and personnel carrier to space. Um, and it ran on this anti-gravity sort of machine. It would, I think, reduce the weight of something up to 98%. So it was almost weightless. Um, and the, the engine was called like a MFD, a magnetic field disruptor. I don't know if that's real, but, you know, we see all these triangular craft in uh, different types of UFO footage from around the world and FLIR and stuff like that. And people capture this floating over neighborhoods silently, you know, so it has to be using some other propulsion system. Or the question is, are some of these craft non-terrestrial and you know you you hear about the moment of contact story you know the virginia uh incident and you're like yeah those were non-terrestrial occupants stanton friedman hypothesized that maybe those were 
aliens that weren't like intelligent occupants. They were more like cargo because if you listen to what happened where the craft had crashed, it had spilled and it had been leaking out all this atmosphere before it crashed and spilled acid all over the ground, which had the exact same noxious, like super strong pneumonia smell um, that repulsed everybody that smelled it. And the aliens had, or the creatures, whatever they were, had the exact same noxious smell, which, you know, killed that one soldier. Um, so Stanton thought maybe it was a transport vessel that got damaged and, and crashed and these things got out. And, uh, you know, cause you hear about things like grays that wear these like whole body suits that are like, I don't know, like a super high tech onesie and their morphology is a little bit different. These things were like black and they had like fins in their heads and red eyes and stuff. You know, gray is gray and has black eyes, big, um, like huge heads. Um, so I don't know, we could be dealing with something from off world when you factor in many different cases that have happened and people have had testimony for, but I think the government probably has that information, possibly even has bodies. Actually, I was just remembering when you mentioned this MFD that Bob Lazar actually mentioned something similar when he would talk about spacecraft that he would work on some sort of magnetic field uh, generator or something that was in the center of these crafts. What are your thoughts on Bob Lazar and, and his claims over the years? The only thing that I'm skeptical about Bob Lazar is the fact that um, he admitted that he was working at a brothel. Uh, for a, He was working for a lady. I don't know if he was dating her or something on the side. I have no idea. But somehow he says in that Jeremy Corbell film that he was working for a lady that was running a brothel. And something went wrong there. Um. So my logic leads me to believe if you want to get the heat off yourself, and most brothels are run by mafia, right? Um, if you want to get out of danger pretty quick, you could put a large, like, you know, you could do a huge statement to the news that will have your face out there. The police will identify you. Everybody's going to know who you are. Um, and that's kind of what he did subsequently after this brothel bad business thing happened. Uh, so was the story made up to get this mafioso attention off of him so they couldn't just whack him and, uh, you know, move on? I don't know. But um, he appears to be a pretty smart guy, right? He was creating those rocket cars, rocket bikes, all that type of stuff. And and there is, you know, possibly an S4 facility or some kind of, you know, there's Los, Alam Los Alamos is out there. There could be a secret base out there that they were ferrying scientists back and forth trying to crack the propulsion system on this exotic craft that's not from Earth. So I'd like to believe it, but when I heard that there was that sort of preceding situation, that altercation that he was in, um, it just set off alarm bells in my head. And I was like, okay, was there a reason for him to make this up? But I don't know. What do you think the most credible UFO encounter is in your opinion? I actually think maybe Virginia, just because, you know, they were captured creatures, right? And apparently the United States were the guys that came in and took everything off. You know, they flew it out of Brazil because the Brazilians were just like, que cosa? Like, they didn't even know what the hell they were dealing with, right? Um, and at this time in the 90s, 
if you think about all the crash retrievals that the United States supposedly had taken part of, part in at this point, they probably, you know, did Brazil a favor by getting those bodies and, and getting the remnants of that craft out of there. But I guess we will only know when more information comes out. I, I, I think that's one of the best, like, alien stories. You know, Roswell was an alien crash story too. And there was hundreds of witnesses. And it's like supposed to be, for most skeptics, the hierophany for a UFO religion, right? It was like the first incident that started off this like chain of other incidents that would create this like UFO gospel. But to me, it's just the first time we realize that our reality is being carefully catered to us by the military and the media, right? Which is slightly owned by the military. If you think about Richard Dolan has this saying, and I'm probably butchering it, but he's like, the CIA or the intelligence agencies bake the bread, they serve it to the media, the the media then sells that to the public and we eat it up. So it's kind of like, I think it is like that because, you know, New York Times and all these uh, popular mainstream media agencies have been trying to walk back some stuff since 2017. If you think about, you know, uh, the fact that Christopher Mellon was responsible for those leaks, the stuff that Lou Elizondo and him got out of the Pentagon, gave to TTSA, and then that made its way to New York Times and stuff. Um, New York Times has been publishing articles that are very like UFO, anti-UFO, not UFO pro since 2017 when this all kind of blew up. And that's because they're not being handed information by people like Christopher Mellon and Louise Elizondo anymore, right? Um, I feel like it's with the formation of Arrow and... um, it was the UAP task force. And it's like, it's like this shell game. Now they keep kind of, and it always has been, I mean, uh, it was UFO, then it's UAP, but we know there was code names like fast walkers and quick swimmers, for example, are the Navy's version of fast walkers in the ocean, right? There are all these different defense and intelligence agencies have classifications and information about UAP, UFOs since the beginning of this uh, phenomenon in modern times, so to speak. Not like paleo uh, sightings and stuff, but like since post-world Roswell. And I feel like we live in the information age. People are so empowered. We can communicate so quickly and efficiently and, and be armed with accurate information um, I'm just worried that what you have with Arrow and you have with um, the government being in the mainstream about this is like to operate this public shell game where they switch everything around and possibly um, obscure information. I just want to jump back to uh, the moon structures. I know we're kind of far off from that, but watching your film, you pointed out some possible shapes and different things that might exist on the moon. What are your thoughts on structures on the moon? Do you think that there's something there to that? Or is it just our eyes playing tricks on us, wanting to see shapes that are there and, you know, pareidolia? Yeah. (laughs) Pareidolia is a real thing, but, um, if you look at the testimony from Carl Wolf, I don't know if Carl Wolf was like swept up in celebrity and, and wanted to uh, be part of Greer's 2001 disclosure project. And therefore he made up this story. But it's weird that, you know, if you watch the documentary, uh, we, we look at Carl Wolf's testimony from around that time where he says he was working for the Air Force. And it was 1961, I think. And he was called in to work at an NSA facility that was actually 
responsible for beaming back images from the lunar orbiter to an Earth-based system, which that base he was in. He was called there to repair this, essentially, a photo printer, high-res photo printer that was downloading these images, printing them out from their system, coming from the lunar orbiter. And this was going swinging around the back side of the moon, the dark side, which we never get to see. We only ever have one face of the moon that revolves and always faces the Earth, right? For your listeners, if they didn't know. So obviously we were curious what's on that side and all these pictures are coming back. And while he was repairing this uh, printer, essentially, one of the Air Force officers, I think of equal rank, called him over to look at some photos that they had found bases, structures on the far side of the moon. And, you know, if it was just one story and we never actually got to see photos, then I would be like, okay, that's just an anecdote. It's a fascinating, you know, bedtime story, but, you know, I wouldn't put too much stock into it. But then you get all these photos that came out of the Apollo manned missions when we were actually sending the capsules around the far side of the moon, starting from Apollo 8. Apollo 9, 10, 11, you know, we landed on the moon and and we would revolve around it in orbit for some time. And every single mission from the X-15 missions at the very start of, uh, very starting of NASA's inception, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. And even today, like I, I make the point in the Fast Walker doc, astronauts take tons of pictures and video when they're in space. And in the case of Apollo and and Lesser, it was DAC motion picture footage, right? So they are tasked with recording as much information visually as possible. And all of this information that was coming from the backside of the moon was showing some types of structuring, some type of anomalies. And Mike Barra has actually provided some pretty good explanations for some of that. I do think that there's stuff there. And, and, you know, one of the things we look at are the the DSEA transcripts, which are kind of like the black box flight recorder conversations. Uh, You know, these things were early telemetry and recording repositories for the capsule missions. And that same technology we use on our passenger aircrafts today when we're flying around countries or continents. So if anything ever goes wrong with the plane, we can recover that black box and see what the conversations were between the pilots in Houston, what the telemetry data is, like what the computer data is now um, these days, just so we can see what the malfunctions were before it went down, right? And those transcripts were first of all classified for 12 years before they reached the public. So why if you know if people really believe that NASA is strictly a civilian research agency and they don't um, have any other authority than just to provide us scientific information, um, you're wrong. They actually follow the exact same classification rules as the Air Force, the Navy, and intelligence agencies. They're just a scientific instrument for the United States government and all of their intelligence and defense agencies. So those transcripts were were uh, classified, and in them you can hear or you can read the astronauts talking about triangular pyramid-shaped mound structures down on the moon, uh, lights. Lights shouldn't be emanating from craters or anything like that. Smoke and like colored brown hills and stuff like that. And, and the moon is supposed to be colorless, right? It's supposed to be just one giant gray mass. But Mike Barra has this, Barra has this belief that there is possibly crystalline glass structures from either an ancient civilization or an extraterrestrial civilization that are remnants sitting on the moon. And uh, he explains this theory that if you have glass and, and sunlight 
shines through it, it creates a prismatic effect. You know, like the Pink Floyd album cover, it has that pyramid, light shoots through it. The prism separates light into three color, uh, I think it's six colors, right? And you see that rainbow. Well, astronauts witnessed that when they were looking at the lunar surface, taking photos uh, and were commenting on that. We didn't get to see any of that in the photos, probably because NASA has an active uh, filtration of that data or possibly censorship program from the public. But when you look at the transcripts, you actually hear astronauts talking about stuff like that. And I find that really interesting. You mentioned that those structures being possibly ancient. Do you think that they could be an active presence? And on top of that, do you think that there is a, uh, a secret space program within the government that's actually even active or has never stopped being active since we last went to the moon from what we know of? Well, we do. We know for sure that we had the manned orbital laboratory, which was a classified modified Gemini capsule mission, but also uh, a station, uh, a large cylindrical station that uh, Air Force personnel would revolve around the Earth and then come back down. All of that, I think it happened from 1963 to 1969, um, if I'm correct. That is all classified. So it, it served two purposes. It was possibly some espionage and also just experimenting with the effects of space um, for military purposes, right? Then we have Skylab 3, which, uh, you know, was a manned space station, very similar to ISS uh, before the ISS. Like this was a smaller space station, but it had multiple floors and eating quarters, you know, uh, all kinds of different uh, applications. And they would observe the planet from there and they would carry out experiments. We know that there's been classified missions that happened in space with conventional technology. Have we been building sort of ARVs, alien reproduction vehicles? I don't know. If you think about the TR-3B story, um, Edgar Rothschild Fouché, you know, would say to a friend of mine who studied that closely that maybe the maiden flight for that was 1979. So I don't think we had like a anti-gravitic secret space program ready to go um, in like the 1970s, so to speak, like the early 70s. But if you do believe that story, it's possible that we've had craft that has gone around the solar system. And I know that there are satellites that have been sent out, specialized defense satellites that have been sent out to observe our solar system and to actually actively look for fast walkers, things that come into our solar system, possibly observe Earth or go into the atmosphere and leave. With the accusations flying around of NASA faking spacewalks, there being evidence of green screens in use and some suspicious anti-gravity skits almost taking place, do you think that there's a possibility that NASA may have even faked the moon landings or at least part of them? Yeah, I think that during the Apollo manned missions, for sure, there was... Um, projection screens in some of the footage on the lunar landscape. So I think that some of the film that we have showing moonwalks at the time is faked. I do believe. And I, if you think about that principle, I think that, well, with this latest documentary, I go through the three, I think it's like four or five different actions that NASA will take. And you'll also see SpaceX do the same sort of actions whenever weird sort of objects and stuff come up in the cameras. And they have a defense contract with the Pentagon, so it would make sense that they might be read into what you can and can't do in space, right? 
especially when it comes to beaming information back to Earth that the public can see. So if you look at the STS missions, which fed the ISS and then some ISS videos, quite often what will happen is those cameras, which are all over the shuttlecraft, um, will either quickly deactivate and they'll cut the feed when something flies into view that's strange, um, or they'll pan the camera away. Uh, there's a really interesting researcher named Jeffrey, Jeff Challender. I don't know if you heard of him, but uh, he, much like Martin Stubbs, analyzed tons of the STS footage that was coming from NASA downlink. He would record it and he would find strange things. And he noticed that Russia, you know, at the time, not now, because the ISS joint collaboration with Russia is over since the invasion of Ukraine. Russia, a, a technician had been communicating with a NASA technician as they were trying to rendezvous the Soyuz space capsule with the ISS. Uh, I can't remember which which mission this was, but Jeffrey Challenger has this recording, which you can hear, where the Russian engineer says from their space program, oh, that 20-second video feed delay, that's why we're having problems aligning, because they were looking in Russia at a 20-second delayed video coming from NASA. So they didn't know they were 20 seconds off from where the craft was. So why would you need a 20-second delay unless you were going to cut the feed or do something to the video? The other thing that Jeffrey Challenger found out was that they incorporated digital noise into the video that was beaming back to Earth just to obscure the images by default. And if you think about it, uh, you know, it only takes one watt of power to send voice from Earth to a satellite dish and then back to Earth to complete calls and stuff like that, right? Um, video is like also, you know, one watt or less. And we had satellite TV during the STS missions that was pristine. Why are these NASA space missions coming through with all this like cloudy noise over the videos unless they literally are obscuring the image by putting a digital filter over top? So if anything comes into view, they you know can just debunk it and say it's space ice or debris or whatever. So yeah, that's uh, I definitely think that NASA knows more. I don't know if what we recorded on a lot of those missions were our experimental craft or craft from somewhere else. I, I don't know, but I do know John Johnny Blaha famously on his STS, uh, was it STS? I want to say STS like 60 something. He uh, was recorded saying, we now have a the alien spacecraft under observance. And then uh, Catherine Coleman, who was on her STS mission much after this, I think it was like, I don't know, STS 70 something. She was recorded saying, we have an unidentified flying object. And then her communication like changed. And, uh, you know, if you look at, the original Apollo missions, they had two communication channels, which if Jim Go, Go, uh, Jim Oberg, who worked for NASA, he loves to troll me on YouTube. You'll see like every single video I do, he'll jump in the comments and say, what are you talking about? Con this conspiracy and stuff like that. He denies that the Apollo missions had two communication channels that the astronauts were allowed to use an encrypted channel that didn't go to the public and then the public facing radio channel. If you read uh, Last Man, which is Eugene Cernan's book on his last his missions as a astronaut and you know the last Apollo 17 mission to the lunar surface, before he took off, uh, Black September threatened to kill his family, which were a terrorist organization from the Middle East. And this was post the Munich 
massacre, right? So he was a little bit afraid when he left to go to the moon, you know, maybe his family was going to be attacked in some way. So there's a passage in his book where he says, I switched to the medical encrypted channel, which was a life signs, you know, that the Houston could check your heart rate and see all your oxygen and all this stuff um, to see if the astronauts were healthy. They could also communicate on that line. And he had a conversation with Deke Slayton, who was a Gemini astronaut uh, that was on ground, in ground control, helping, you know, communicate with the astronauts that are up there. And they had a long conversation about what was going on. And he checked in on his family to see if they were fine. Deke Slayton said they were fine. Uh, Black September wasn't doing anything. So that's proof that even during the Apollo manned missions, they had two communication channels. They have to have the same thing for the STS missions. Just they have the technical they have the technical ability so some of these communications we had during the STS missions where you hear astronauts say these outlandish things and then they stop it might be because they started communicating on the public channel before they realized and switched to the encrypted channel and then carried on the conversation there you know people make mistakes yeah yeah Wild stuff, man. Darcy, we are going to wrap it up. Before we go, please let everybody know, let our listeners know where they can watch your documentaries, where they can pick up some of your different other documentaries and films. The stage is yours. Promote yourself. Cool. Uh, yeah, you can just check out my docs on uh, Amazon, iTunes, and uh, a, a bunch of them are free on uh, 2B TV. Perfect. To be TV boys. Thank you again, Darcy. We appreciate you and uh, keep doing what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're, you're yeah. doing a hell of a job with these documentaries. It's great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Hushlings. We are going to wrap this one up. Thank you for coming by to another declassified discussions. I am mystery Mike. I'm declassified Dave. And I'm sick. Frank Sanders.